from LPM, Louisville Public Media. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. was my first real point of entry with poetry as something that might be mine. But the reason I mention this book in particular is because it has my brother David's name in the front of it. From Louisville Public Media, this is Five Things, the show that tells a life story through the objects we treasure. I'm Tara Anderson. Each week, we ask a guest to select five physical objects from their life that hold some significance or resonance for them. Through those things, we learn about the important turning points, the people and the places that have made them who they are. My guest this week is one of my very favorite musicians, Joe Henry. His brother Dave was one of my first guests on this show, and I was thrilled when Joe agreed to take part as well. He's just released his 14th studio album called Thrum, and he's also produced records for a lot of amazing musicians, including Elvis Costello, Bonnie Raitt, Ani DeFranco, Alan Toussaint, you know, no big deal. He's co-written songs with Roseanne Cash and with Madonna, who happens to be his sister-in-law. Joe and I spoke by phone. I was here in Louisville, and he was in Los Angeles. My name is Joe Henry. I am a singer and a songwriter, a record producer. I write some poetry and essays as well. I live in Los Angeles and have been here nearly 28 years. I've been uh, professionally engaged in the, in the music racket for I guess 31 years, almost 32 years at this point. That's probably what most people would need to know about me to begin this, I would imagine. Yeah, um, you've worked with a lot of musicians who our listeners would probably know. Um, You worked on Joan Baez's last album, right? I did. Uh, What she says is her very last album. You know, she turned 77 in January and decided, you know, one more album, one more world tour, then I'm just going to paint and travel, live like I want to live. You know, she's a, a remarkable person with a tremendous legacy and beyond music, you know, a culturally important person to so many of us. But I've done a lot of work with so-called legacy artists. You know, I've made a lot of my living producing people, I won't say like Joan, because there's nobody like Joan, but in, <laughs> in regard to artists who really matter. And as it turns out, I've, I've produced what will stand as the, as the final recordings for a number of artists. But before Joan, I never knew that was the case, you know. Produced Mose Allison when he was 84. I had a pretty good sense that that was his last recording, though he hadn't pronounced that. Uh, same with Jimmy Scott, with Solomon Burke. But Joan was the first occasion I had to go into a studio with someone whose history is that significant, who announced up front that she meant to button things up and that she wanted to do it with real purpose and deliberation. So I felt a completely unique and conscious responsibility to her and her legacy when we were going after what she says is her final statement. Right, exactly. So I asked you to pick out five things that have been significant or resonant in your life somehow, and we're going to talk about them and 
kind of learn a bit about your life story, if that doesn't sound like too much pressure. Um, Sounds like plenty of pressure, where, but I don't mind. Yeah. Okay. You're, you're up for it. Um, where would you like to start? Well, the first thing I'm going to talk about is an old leather guitar strap. It sounds uh, you know, fairly innocuous. This guitar strap that I have, and I've been in possession of it since 1983, it belonged to my best friend in high school, a young man, and he never lived to be beyond a young man. His name was Greg Peters, a really close friend to both my brother Dave and, and I. He's Dave's age when we were in high school, two years my senior. And I met Greg in the fall of 1975, um, when I was probably two months away from being 15. And Greg was a really interesting, completely anomalous character. I mean, there we were in high school. He was a, you know, he was a beatnik. He was from downtown Detroit. He was that character in the hall that had a full beard, you know, wore a beret, you know, red Rimbaud. In high school. In high school. <laughs> you know, I didn't yeah. understand at the time, as I do now, that he was already living his senior years. He died at 25 from a disease called scleroderma. And um, he turned out to be a wildly significant character in my life, and he remains one. I would say no one other than my brother Dave was as influential to my formation as Greg was in the way that he continued to give me things to read, listen to, to study that he somehow knew was important to my journey. You know, he's the first mm. person that ever handed me a, a Tom Waits record, a Loudon Wainwright record, an album by the band. He loaned me the first Miles Davis record that I ever listened to sincerely. You know, he would have exposed me to uh, Richard Brodigan and Charles Bukowski and Ezra Pound. And somehow, in his early 20s, he had already kind of amassed this incredible library of knowledge. And again, you know, I can look back now and say, well, he was in his, the last years of his life. He was living like a person, you know, who was in the last years of their life, evidencing a, a culmination of incredible personal history, which defied his age. But in any case, you know, I played my first live show as a musician with him. You know, oh, wow. I was still sit singing folk songs in my bedroom. And he had moved to suburban Rochester, Michigan, where we lived, from downtown Detroit. But he still had these old beatnik friends in downtown Detroit who ran a coffee house in the basement of their old Catholic church. There was a room they called the catacombs down below the ground level of the parish there, and they would, on Sunday nights, hold poetry readings and these intimate kind of folk concerts. And Greg and I went down together and played one night. It was the first time I ever stood in front of an audience and sang anything. We did some things in duo and some things alone. Greg would have been wearing this guitar strap that I'm describing, you know, leather, mm. hand-tooled, slightly Western in its appearance. Um, but his mother gave it to me after he died. And... I've had many occasions, whether I see somebody put it to use in my home studio or whether I do, but most significantly, you know, I'll say that the night that we played this show together at the Catacombs in downtown Detroit, which would have been in the fall of 1976, probably. And I think the first song that I sang alone, so the first song that I would have ever performed in solo in front of an audience, was a song by my now, now dear friend Loudon Wainwright, called New Paint. Mm. And in the song, Loudon sings the line, you know, if I was 16 again, I'd, I'd give my eye tooth. You know, and I sang that very sincerely, though I was only 15, pining <laughs> nostalgically to be 16. 
Um, (laughs) But this all comes full circle to how many years later, 30-some years later, when I'm producing Loudon Wainwright in the basement of my own home, and Loudon revisits this song from 1972 that he wrote called New Paint. And for whatever reason in this particular moment, he puts his own guitar down and grabs one of my little 1930s Gibson acoustic guitars that just happened to have Greg's guitar strap on it. And Loudon puts on this guitar, goes into the booth, and I'm looking at him through the window, and I'm seeing my friend Greg's guitar strap running down the back of Loudon Wainwright. And of course, I know of Loudon Wainwright because of Greg. I sang that song, Standing with Greg. So to be in that moment where somehow, by the strange and mysterious hand of the universe, Loudon Wainwright is in my basement revisiting this song of his, and I see Greg's guitar strap holding it all together. It felt like um, its own perfect period at the end of a very long sentence. What do you think Greg would say about your life now if he had a chance to see it? That I'm a lucky motherfucker. Um, <laughs> because I, you know, I lived past 25 and he didn't, you know. Yeah. I married the love of my life. He did not. I have gone on to do things that he and I set up late into the night and talked about wanting to do. Um, yeah. So whenever I'm in a moment of real uh, distress professionally, and I can be, I frequently think about Greg and hear what I believe his voice would be in my head telling me to get rid of distraction and get back to work because that's what he'd like to be doing, I have to imagine. I had the good fortune to talk to your brother about Greg, and I, I remember him very clearly as a character in my own mind, you know, even though he's somebody I never met. And your brother said that he often felt a sense of Greg's presence in his life well after his passing. Oh, sure. It I mean, Dave like and I feel have, that too. Yeah, Dave and I both had very mystical encounters with Greg's ghost one night together in Brooklyn. Uh, in 1987, I had just gotten married, lived a neighborhood away in Brooklyn, and we sat up with a Ouija board one night on the anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. We were at first talking to Elvis Presley, and at a certain point, Dave and I both realized fairly simultaneously that we believed that we were talking to Greg. What did he say? Oh, he said a lot of things that all of a sudden started to make different kinds of sense when we thought Uh it was coming from Greg. Um, I was in a really difficult relationship with my first record label at that time, and I was significantly demoralized. Uh, I remember that very distinctly. I had just gotten married to my wife, Melanie. Greg knew Mel also. We all were in high school together. I asked him what I should do. And I'm thinking that I'm asking for professional advice. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm struggling with my publisher. I'm struggling with my record label. What should I do? And the Ouija board just spelled back, love Mel. Oh, wow. And I thought, okay, (laughs) um, that's the right advice.
Well, I don't know how we can possibly go on from there, but <laughs> would you like to tell me about your second thing? Sure. Um, it's a coffee cup. Again, something that sounds just on the surface. Of course, it's a very innocuous, as they used to stay on the quiz shows, you know, a household item that you find around the house every day. This coffee cup is an old, very thick porcelain diner cup. You would see it if you're watching a movie from the 30s, if you're watching Petrified Forest, and Humphrey Bogart goes to the trucker's coffee shop in the middle of the desert and orders a coffee. This is exactly the cup that they would bring it in, stamped with the word Victor on the bottom. That was the company. Coffee factors big into my life. And from the time that I was about 14, I would think, and again, my brother Dave's going to keep coming up in these conversations <laughs> because some of, many of my items are from a period of our shared evolution. Um, we started collecting old coffee cups. You know, I guess we fetishized coffee because uh, Dave and I and our friend Greg and our dear friend, a fellow named John Stozio, who's a recluse living up in northern Michigan. I assume he's still living up there. We would go sit at a coffee shop and talk for three, four hours on a Saturday or a Friday night, a place called the Landmark Diner in Rochester, Michigan. And we could sit there and drink coffee, and it was a bottomless cup, and they would just keep filling up our cup for as many hours as we sat there, and we'd each get a check for like 69 cents or whatever. And um, this was when you were in high school? Uh, yes. So, mm -hmm. you know, late 70s. So coffee became this ritualistic thing that it is for many people, you know, it's not so much the caffeine we have a hard time getting rid of if we've been asked to stop drinking coffee. I think it's the ritual of making coffee that you know you're about to share and about the conversation that attends when people gather at a table with a cup of coffee in front of them. But anyway, my brother Dave and I used to collect and still each have big piles of these mismatched old diner coffee cups that are indestructible. But this Victor cup that I'm talking about, this white porcelain thick cup, was my first such acquisition. We were visiting my grandparents back in North Carolina. Uh, I'm talking about my maternal grandparents at this moment. But we went out to a, a fish camp. You know, people would go to these very rustic, lodge-looking buildings on a Friday or Saturday night and sit family-style at these big, long tables, and people would eat fried fish, and they were called a fish camp. I was just beginning to have a real romance with coffee. I think I must have <laughs> elevated my status. I was 12 or 13, and I must have thought that to drink coffee was to kind of give yourself a field promotion. You know, you were automatically uh, a grown person. A grown-up, yeah. And we go to this fish camp, and I have a cup of coffee after dinner, and the waiter puts this great old, slightly scarred Victor coffee cup in front of me. And I just had that thought that I needed to possess it. And uh, my granddad asked to have the manager sent over. And he said, my grandson needs this cup. What do you need for it? <laughs> and he said, I'll sell it to you for a quarter. So my grandfather bought me this cup. And I continued to carry it around. In fact, I'm not making this up. I used it this morning before I left the house. And hmm. uh, I have you know dozens of these old diner coffee cups and a lot of them have stories attached but this one in particular being not only the very first one that i ever owned you know i would also say that no matter how long i've had it and i you know i'm 57 and i think i got it when i was 13 i don't ever pour a 
coffee into it. I don't pull an espresso into this cup where I don't consciously think of my granddad. It's just immediately available to me, and it's never not. It's amazing to me how much the memory of that exchange lives so purely within this object, and I'm sure that's why you do this program, because everything we're talking about or you talk with anybody about, these are inert objects, typically, that nonetheless continue to give up narrative. You know, they just possess them. My memory of this cup, when my brother Dave and I first moved together away from our parents' home, we moved to Ann Arbor together in uh, 1980, in the fall of 1980. We shared a one-bedroom apartment in the converted attic of this old kind of craftsman-style house, and they had built, I'm sure, to accommodate fire codes to make that a a rentable space, put this old-fashioned metal fire escape stairway up the side of this house. It kind of wrapped around from the back to the side up to our third floor, and there was a, a door with a screen door on it right there at the top of the fire escape. And Dave and I used to use this fire escape as our kind of balcony, as our our Mm -hmm. porch. And I remember sitting out there late one night with a cup of coffee in this Victor cup and David swinging the screen door open and knocking my cup down three stories and it bounced off the black top of the driveway (laughs) and into the shrubs (laughs) of the uh, fraternity house next door. And I just, you know, ran down with a flashlight fed my hand into this dense shrubbery and extracted this coffee cup that had just fallen three floors and bounced on the driveway, perfectly intact, which is why these old diners use them, because you could stack them, you could put them in a bag and carry them across town, and nothing would ever happen to them. This cup was just (laughs) sort of destined to endure with me, I believe, because it it Mm. has, you know, through I don't know how many moves, it was still there to to utilize this morning. I'm struck by your grandfather's reaction when you said you wanted the cup. He didn't ask you why you want it. He didn't seem to think that was a odd request. He just went about getting it for you. That's true. I have no memory of him expressing any surprise that this was something I needed to possess. He just seemed to understand that implicitly. But yeah, he was a, he was a remarkable and uh, extremely kind and deep soul. Um, So I hadn't thought of it till you bring it up, but it doesn't surprise me at all to imagine that in that moment, you know, he was just in the business of being affirming. He wasn't in the business of, why do you need such a thing? Or should you even be drinking coffee at 12? My third item is a coffee pot that belonged to my wife's beloved grandmother, Elsie Mae Fortin. Elsie Fortin died, I want to say probably six years ago now, just two months shy of her 100th birthday. And three days before she passed, you know, she was still sitting her at her kitchen table and we Skyped with her from Los Angeles. So, you know, she was still very present and mentally completely sharp. And she was a very important person, not only in my wife's life, but mine as well. My wife Melanie's mother died when when Mel was 18 months old. And a lot of her early raising happened on the knee of her grandmother, Elsie. You know, all the kids got sort of farmed out to relatives. Mel's mom died and left six children a year apart behind. And my father-in-law, you know, turned to family and community to help. And Melanie wound up 
with her maternal grandmother, which was probably the single greatest blessing of her life. You know, as tragic as the loss of her mom was, um, the fact that she would have wound up on Elsie's doorstep was sort of equally advantageous as her mom's loss had been devastating. Um, because I think Melanie has a emotionally intact psyche almost purely because of her grandmother, who offered her unconditional love when there was not necessarily evidence of it coming from anywhere else in that particular moment. So when Elsie mm-hmm. died, and I had known Elsie since Mel and I first began dating, so I remember how significant it was the weekend that Mel drove me to Bay City, Michigan to meet her grandmother. I knew that was no small thing. But she had an old coffee pot. I think it's probably from the 40s, made by the Revere Company. who make, you know, copper-bottom skillets and cooking pots that we've all seen our mothers and our grandmothers use. This is a really big stovetop, a percolator that would even hang over an open fire, like a camping percolator. Mm, mm-hmm. And it's quite big. It looks like a big bucket. Beautifully designed mechanism that I think her husband used to take on camping trips. And I remember that it wound up, you know, it was far, had outlived its use. You know, she had moved to a Mr. Coffee Pot or something, you know, in the 70s, probably. But in the top of her kitchen pantry hung this beautiful old 40s Revere coffee percolator. And I commented on it many times when I was there. If she asked me to fish something out of the pantry for her, I would invariably see it and comment on how beautiful that it was. And, you know, and she always said, well, you could just take it. And I said, no, I don't want to take it. You know, I always want to see that it's hanging here when I come to your house. Um, But when she passed and I was asked by my sister-in-law, Paula, who was on site there when they were going through the house, is there something you want for a keepsake? And I said, yeah, if nobody else has grabbed it, um, go find me that Revere coffee pot and send it to me. And Mm. uh, I don't use it a lot. I see it every day. I have a habit of on an Easter Sunday morning, I will make a big percolator in this pot, you know, mostly just for the activity. You know, I stand there and watch it perk over the stove, just like I stand around Mm -hmm. a fire. It's a gathering place more than anything else. I do it to remember her, you know. And it occurs to me that, she took your wife in at a time when she herself was grieving, right? It was, sure. That was her, her daughter that she had lost. Yeah, and it wasn't her first child that she lost. I mean, you know, oh, it's a woman my. who, by the time she passed, I think she had buried four of her eight children. Oh. So, um, like, yes. I just wonder how somebody continues to function in that situation. Well, Tara, of course you, you wonder that, and I have wondered the same. You know, one thing that's really remarkable about Elsie Fortin is that as old as she became, she forever had a very young girl's innocence about her, even though she'd had incredible and intense life experience. You know, she grew up her entire life within a 20-mile radius of where she was born in, in Michigan. But to talk to somebody who had lived that hard a life and had witnessed so much loss, as a lot of people of her generation did, That whole area of Bay City, Saginaw, heavily industrial Michigan, and it's known as the Cancer Belt. I mean, the rate of cancer Mm. in that region along the river there is incredible. The fact that Elsie had lived and endured as much loss as she had, and yet she maintained this incredible youthful 
innocent spirit. I don't want to say naive because that sounds judgmental. It wasn't mm-hmm. that she was naive, but she had a beautiful innocence about her, this kind of sense of wonder. She could easily be just completely intrigued. You know, we would show up and we'd cook something for dinner that she'd never eaten before. And she was just invariably fascinated, you know, like a child when you hand them something new. Her ability to be amazed and delighted was incredible. Where does that percolator live now in your kitchen? It's in a glass cabinet in my dining room, so I, mm. I can see it daily. I take it out with purpose whenever I take it out. You know, it's, it's always a, a decision to go retrieve it and decide to make a big pot of coffee with it because it means people are coming over. This is a book, The Collected Later Poems of William Carlos Williams. I flagged this book in particular not only because of good Dr. Williams, who was the first poet that I fell in love with. You know, it was my first real point of entry with poetry as something that might be mine. But the reason I mention this book in particular is because it has my brother David's name in the front of it. It's Dave's book. He handed it to me to read when I was 15, I think, and I clearly never returned it. <laughs> um, though I, I will say I have a lot of books and records in my house that have my brother's name written in blue ballpoint pen in the front of them. I'm almost embarrassed. You know, I still uh, will loan my son Levon a book, and he'll take it back to Brooklyn and say, hey, you know, Uncle Dave's name's in the front of this one, too. And I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> um, Dave handing me William Carlos Williams at a point when I needed to be exposed to William Carlos Williams was important. It was the first time I had picked up a book, really, and felt like it wasn't just something to read and compute and put away. It was something you kept close, that you would keep referring to. And I remember it was a book I used to just carry around if I was leaving the house. I would just get a notebook and take this book, even if I never opened it. It was just something for a while that I thought I was supposed to have on me because it told me something about about who I was and what I meant to do and who I meant to be. It spoke to me that way. So it you know, it remains this incredibly significant artifact. It sits on my desk all the time, still. And the fact that Dave has never once asked for it back, he knows that I have it. (laughs) Um, I don't know that he's replaced it. I should have been very stand up and I still could and buy a new copy and send it to him. It's not just that it's that it's Williams, it's that, you know, Dave, like he did many, many times in my formative years, handed me the next thing that I would need. He mm-hmm. handed me the first grown ups book I ever read, you know, when I was eleven or twelve, you know, I remember him handing me Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. And it was the first oh, wow. the first book I would have ever read in my life that I would still read now, probably. It was a transformational book. But the fact that Dave gave me that book at a moment when he must have divined that I was ready for it and continued and does continue in my life to hand me books, records, points me toward film that I need to see, things like that. So this particular copy of The Collected Later Poems of William Carlos Williams with Dave's name in the front of it in blue ballpoint pen, you know, stands as a constant reminder to me of how much Dave is responsible for my education. I could have very easily, and I say this quite literally, and I should have. I should have not gone to college. I should have had 
my parents take the money that they'd saved to send me to college and just give it to Dave to continue <laughs> to hand me the next book, the next book, and the next book, because that's, in fact, what happened. And that was, that was the real source of my, my formal education. You know, we were in the same college for a moment. You know, my f- freshman year, before I transferred to University of Michigan, I was still living at my parents' house and going to Oakland University in Rochester, and Dave was going there as well. And I remember one day passing Dave, you know, in the student center or something, and him saying, just grabbing me and saying, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, I'm, I have to be at work. I worked at the public library in town. I said, I'm on my way to the library. And he said, go call in sick and come back. So, okay. I went and I called the library and I said, I'm not well. I'm not coming in this afternoon. And uh, <laughs> I went back and found Dave and he said, okay, come with me. And we walked into this tiny little lecture hall and there's Buckminster Fuller. I had no idea who Buckminster Fuller was. Oh, wow. But it changed my life. Tiny little man stood there in front of us in this lecture hall that maybe held, I don't know, 70 people and talked without notes for three and a half hours. What? And I, I was never the same. Dave just understood that, like, you need to be here. What was said that afternoon that changed you so much? Oh, uh, only uh, the entire workings of the universe explained to me. Oh, no big deal. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my last item, in, in as much as the coffee pot was related to the coffee cup, mm-hmm. um, my last item is a is a bookmark that's crocheted out of really thin, kind of silky thread that's mm-hmm. variegated green in color. My wife Melanie made it for me when she was an exchange student in Brazil, her senior year of high school. So this would have been through the fall and winter of seventy uh, nine into 80 and I was irretrievably in love with her though we were just friends at the time and she was involved in a very significant relationship while she was in Brazil the first significant love relationship of her life Mm. and I was back in Michigan you know the last of the great torch burners you know um, (laughs) just completely lost in the belief that even though she was in Brazil and deeply involved with somebody that I just purely believed that we were supposed to marry at some point in our future. But it was a really difficult time because I was really, really heartsick about not only her absence, but the possibility. I was like, you know, if we're supposed to be together, if the universe thinks we're supposed to be together, it's doing a piss poor job of aligning these stars. (laughs) You know, I don't see how this works out. And yeah, I completely believed that it had to. Hmm. Um, And were you you all... In touch then? Were you writing letters? How did you know about what was going on with her at the time? Oh, her sister told me what was going on. Mm-hmm. I wrote her letters. Uh, she did not write me back very uh, <laughs> often. Oh. I think it was just yeah. hard for her. Yeah. Um, I was two years older than her. I was close friends with her sister, Paula. I think she was a, a little disoriented by, my, uh, by the intensity of my love for her, you know? There was nothing that kind of made sense out of it. Uh, it didn't make sense to me either. I'd never been involved with anybody before. So it was unprecedented for me too. I just, you know, poetic soul, I, I completely believed it, even though I had no way to justify it. 
But I think that she continued to get these letters from me, and I know she felt some discomfort at not responding, but also not knowing how to respond. So at one point, one thing she did was her host mother, with the family she was living with in Brazil, taught her to crochet. And she made me this primitive-looking, like a young person's first crocheted uh, (laughs) bookmark, and she mailed it to me with very few words on a piece of onion skin airmail paper like we used to use. Yeah, um, right. Folded around it. And when I got it, I uh, I put it inside my uh, hardcover edition of Catcher in the Rye, which was probably my compass at the time, you know. For the heart sick, if you're looking for True North, you just look at Holden Caulfield. He's pointing right at it. <laughs> um, so that book spoke to my feeling alone and disconnected from what I believed that my life was supposed to be. I'm sure that's why Mm. that book spoke to me as intensely as it did. And so it was a very natural thing, uh, though not a conscious thing, as I just articulated it. But I I parked this bookmark inside Catcher in the Rye because I knew this is a book and this edition of this book that I would be carrying around the rest of my life, I believed. And if I didn't get anything else from Melanie, I had that and I knew where it was. At the time... Did you take it as a sign? You know, she was thinking about you all the way from Brazil. Uh, I don't know that I did. Mm-hmm. I might have taken it a little bit like a consolation prize. <laughs> you know? But here, take this handy bookmark with you. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know? Um, no, I mean, I'm sure that I was just delighted that she had had responded to me. And I was touched that she'd made something for me. Um, that's yeah. true. I don't think that I believe that it portended anything else as far as her conscious thinking than I had made her feel really uncomfortable. I think I knew that, that (laughs) the ferocity and consistency of my writing to her was a bit overwhelming in a way that I didn't have any way to understand. You know, it was the one thing that I could do. So I did it. So tell me about how things changed then. She came back from Brazil. She didn't marry a Brazilian. Am I right? She did not marry a Brazilian. Um, but, I mean, it's a longer and harder story. I'll give you the, the headlines. Uh, mm-hmm. She came back and found herself in a relationship with a lovely young man who had been her classmate at our, at our shared high school, somebody who was in her class. I was two years her senior. And she had a uh, very real and important relationship with this young man to whom she was engaged. And then uh, a few years later, she was still in college. She was a Spanish literature major at Michigan State University in East Lansing. Melanie went to Spain to study for the summer. And while she was away, her boyfriend Mike was hit by a car riding his bike and, and killed. Oh, um, my goodness. And this happened maybe only two months before my friend Greg died. So um, Melanie and I had continued to... Actually, we'd been a a bit out of touch at that period after she came back from Brazil and was at Lansing and I was in Ann Arbor and she was with Mike. Um, But at the point that she lost Mike, we happened to both be back in Rochester at the same time. Both of our parents lived within a couple miles of each other. And I had heard that Mike had, had died and called her house, uh, her parents' house, and found out that she was, in fact, home for the weekend from Lansing, and I went over to see her. And then we started to be in touch again. 
And then a couple months later, my friend Greg died, and I was just devastated. And I made my first attempts to move to New York. Actually, two days after Greg's funeral, was the first time I went to New York and was house-sitting for my college professor's mother on Staten Island trying to find a way to stay in New York that I could afford to stay. I was unable, retreated back to Ann Arbor, once again took an apartment with my brother Dave. But Melanie and I sort of found a new relationship in a moment of deep and shared grief. You know, we had both lost people intensely important to us within a couple of months of each other and found ourselves sort of united in grief. I mean, that's how it began. I started to say it's, it's not a terribly romantic story that way, except there's nothing more romantic for human beings than, you know, love growing out of grief. I mean, that is the ultimate romance, isn't it? That's why we are romantic. We are looking for ways in which life, even in face of the inevitable, is affirmed. And that's what happened to us. And how long have you all been married now? Uh, Next month, it'll be 31 years. That's how I I'm sure you hear that dog barking, by the way. I do. It just makes it folksy. That's it. So I've got one last question for you. Sure, Uh, sure. In the process of gathering and selecting all of these five items, was there anything that you think you might have learned about yourself? Well, um, now that you ask it, I think for the most part, the coffee cup from my grandfather notwithstanding, I recognize that all the stuff that I turn to as being incredibly meaningful artifacts all come from a very fairly concise span of time. You know, mm-hmm. uh, There are all things that I still have that I acquired within a couple of years of each other. I should say yeah. it's true about everything except my uh, wife's grandmother's coffee pot. Everything else sort of came to me within a, you know, a few years of each other. So I look back and say, there's a lot of reasons why that was really important, formative time. And the fact that I still possess these things and would turn to them when, you, when, when invited to put my hands on something important to me as an artifact, that they all come from the same time and place pretty much. You know, I'm 15, 16, and 17 through most of this conversation that I'm revisiting. Mm -hmm. At that age, you're just old enough to know what might be important to you, but you also don't have enough life experience that you're pronouncing judgment on things that cross your windshield. You know, you're just sort Mm -hmm. of in receiving mode. What else can I learn from here? What can I pull from here? You know, you're not casting things off. You're just sort of very innocently leaving your doors and windows open to influence. And very shortly thereafter, we start believing it's important to make judgments about things, because that tells us something about who we are. But in that earlier moment that I'm describing of my teens in particular, I wasn't thinking about being allowed to cast off anything. I didn't feel like I had the right to decide that this person's record or this person's book is less than. It's like somebody got this done. Somebody has put this out in the world. It has to be, there has to be something in it worth learning. <laughs> Judgment quickly comes into it. Our culture is really good at inspiring an entitlement of judgment. But at a certain point, you're just, you're like that, you know, baby bird with the mouth open, just waiting for the universe to nourish you with whatever it thinks you might need. Well, I want to say thank you for taking the time to do this with me. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Tara. I enjoyed it myself. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks again to Joe Henry for being my guest today. Today's show was produced, edited, and mixed by me. Our executive producer is Stephen George with editing by Erica Peterson. We had music from Gloria Tells, Martin Land, Peter Sandberg, Marcus Ringblond, and Sebastian Forsland. And our theme music is by Alex Wright. 
You can get more information on our show at WFPL.org and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Support comes from Vision Zero. On foot or behind the wheel, safety is a shared responsibility. And Vision Zero Louisville believes zero roadway fatalities is the only acceptable amount. Their mission is to create safe roads by design, engineering solutions, and education. More information at visionzerolouisville.org. 